0: Let's get joined up. I'm Wayne Kelly, and this episode is sponsored by Picklock Publishing, the imprint behind my debut novel Safe Hands, which tells the story of Mickey Blake, a retired safecracker pulled out of retirement for one last job, and Hazel, a desperate mother driven to kill to protect her son from being sucked into a life of crime. It's out now to buy on Kindle, and in paperback, and, if you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, you can read the book for free. That's Safe Hands by W.A. Kelly. Right, that's enough advertising. Cue the theme tune. Hello and welcome to the Joined Up Writing Podcast, where a little procrastination can go a long way. I'm Wayne Kelly and it's episode 204 with S.A. Cosby, a writer I'm a huge fan of, from Blacktop Wasteland through to Razorblade Tears and his latest dark tale All the Sinners Bleed. It's a brilliant chat that covers why Sean loves the noir genre, his inspiring journey to success after years of hard work and rejection, his tips for writers trying to fit their work around a day job, as well as his three choices for the book that saved my life. It was an absolute delight to get to talk to Sean and I know you'll enjoy the chat. Before we get to that, a very, very brief update from me. I've been beavering away on book two, getting up early each day to get the words down and battling the ever-present demon of self-doubt. I've got a non-negotiable deadline to meet, so I just need to keep my head down and get the first draft done. It's messy, it's painful, but as the saying goes, you can't edit a blank page. I also need to thank my friend Dan Howarth for putting up with me moaning about my plot worries on an almost daily basis and telling him I'm terrified that I'll never finish the book. (laughs) He's kept me going with constant reminders that I've done it before with safe hands and that I'll be able to do it again. He also wrote an excellent blog post about trying to focus on the joy of writing, remembering that at some level we must enjoy this crazy pursuit we indulge in. There's got to be some level of enjoyment if we're returning to fill the blank page day after day after day. And Dan's right to point out that we often forget that. For me, some of my best stuff has been written when I take the brakes off, put the top down and just speed towards the horizon. Worry about the destination later, but, you know, just try to enjoy the journey. Uh aside from that and the day job, I've also been recording the safe hands audio book, which I'm hoping will be released before the end of the year. It's a mammoth task, to be honest, but I'm working my way through it and I'll let you know when all uh, you audio book fans can get your lug holes around it. Uh, so that's me. But what about you? How are things in your writing world? Which project is giving you the most joy at the minute? What are you reading? Which guests would you like to see on the show in 2024? I want to hear all about it. So get in touch and let me know. You can do that by emailing wayne at waynekellywrites.com or dropping me a line on the FB or Twitter pages. And don't forget to sign up to my mailing list. You'll get my monthly newsletter, but also you'll get a free ebook with two new crime stories. And that's at waynekellywrites.com. Anyway, let's crack on, because it's time for today's interview with S.A. Cosby. S.A. Cosby is an Anthony Award-winning writer from Southeastern Virginia. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. It was a New York Times Notable Book, and it was named a Best Book of the Year by NPR, The Guardian, and Library Journal. All of that, plus he's been mentioned as one of Barack Obama's favourite writers twice. His latest book, All the Sinners Bleed, is out right now, and you should definitely give it a read if you like dark crime fiction. So thanks again to Sean for doing this. As you may hear, um, he did have quite a bad cold, but he still took the time to do the interview, so I appreciate that. So enjoy the chat, and I'll pop back at the end to wrap things up. okay sean thanks so much for joining me on joined up writing really appreciate it so why don't we just start off just give us a sense of how things are going for you they look like they're going pretty well from the outside anyway and tell people where you're speaking from in the world at the moment
1: yes so i am uh calling in from uh uh, virginia the state of virginia in the united states Mm -hmm. um and i live in a very small town which is Has a sister city in England called uh, Gloucester. I live in a small county called Gloucester here in in Virginia, Um, and so you know, of course, we're you know we're still tied to the crown in some ways. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but no, I'm here. I just got back from uh, an extended visit to Spain, uh, where I was uh, promoting uh, some of my books, and the Spanish folks were incredibly kind and generous to me. And so um, yeah, I guess the way things are going are for you know for the writing aspect. Pretty good. I can't complain. You yeah. know, I think it is a, a case though, uh, you know, nobody ever wants to hear the lottery when they're complaining. And in many ways, I understand <laughs> it. Go I, for it. Go I for am, it. I won the lottery. But I will say it is uh it is sort of one of those things where you get the thing that we all want. You want success, you want notoriety, you want your books in stores. Yeah. And, it's, and once you get it, there are two things that happen. Uh there's this idea. If you're like me, you come from a working class background. Mm-hmm. Um, you realize, oh, you start to think, well, I've got to write a book. I got to write like a book every year. I got to write a book every couple of years because I got to maintain this. I've got to yeah. hold on to this. Yeah. Um. And I think the other side of that coin is again, you come from a sort of, you know, slightly impoverished background as I do. Yeah. Um. You don't think sometimes you don't think you deserve it, and so it's it's psychologically it, it is wonderful. It's been fun. I've gotten to meet so many people because of my words and my Mm -hmm. books but at the same time there is a weight that you bear um you know heavy is the head that wears the crown and and all that so can't complain but it is definitely something you you want to be cognizant of or mindful of um because there are so many you know and i'm sure you know these as well so many horror stories of creative people, writers, actors, entertainers, or whatever, who aren't able to process that and aren't able to deal with it. And, you know, things go awry.
0: I think it's, as you say, I think it's the imposter syndrome. I think you have it when you're trying to make it as a writer, but then it sounds, you know, I've spoken to lots of other successful writers that have had, you know, their 10 or 15 or whatever books down the road, and they still never seem to be able to quite escape that, that idea that, they're sort of waiting for somebody to tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey buddy, you've had your time. <laughs> now it's, <laughs> step, you know, it's, time, it's time to step away again or whatever. So I don't, I don't think you're on your own in that.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think if you start to lose that, I think maybe you need to have a long conversation with yourself as a creative person. I think yeah. once you become, I've said this before, and it's sort of a colloquialism, but I think complacency in the arts it's like sugar to tea too much of it ruins it you know and i think if you start to become complacent as an artist as a writer creative whatever your endeavor um you'll find yourself losing you know the edge i guess you know there's still you know one of my favorite musicians is uh bruce springsteen Mm -hmm. and he had an article or interview one time where he was talking about an album i can't remember which album it was but uh he said you know it's hard sometimes for me to write about a poor man's problems when i'm wearing this rich man's shirt yeah you know and and i think i'm not rich by any means mm-hmm. but i think it is something that you worry about as a writer am i going to be able to maintain that edge that sort of perspective that got me here you know like i said again I, I mentioned it before i come from a pretty yeah impoverished background in a pretty small town and those stories are what have driven me as what's driven my career is my desire to uh, want to explore the place that I'm from through the eyes of the people I grew up with and so I think you know five years ago me going to Spain about as close as I got to Spain was going to a Spanish restaurant here in town <laughs> yeah. and so you know and, and I've been to England this year I've been to Amsterdam my books are all over the and so I think you have to stay grounded as a writer um, so you don't lose that edge I think oh god I can't remember who it was but it was a famous person that said the moment you start believing your own hype is the moment your career is over
0: yeah 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 definitely i think that's right well talking about those uh particular stories and and the things that you create why don't you tell us about your latest book which is the superb all the sinners bleed
1: yeah i'd love to so all the sinners bleed is the story of titus crown he's the first black sheriff in a small southern town a, so- a town very similar to where i reside yeah. um and as the book opens he's coming up on his one-year anniversary of winning a special election. And like I said, he's the first black sheriff in the history of this small southern town that's rife with secrets, with racism, with sexism. Um, you know, it's just like a lot of small towns all over the world. Mm-hmm. And on this one-year anniversary, there's a tragic event at the local high school. A teacher is shot by a former student, and then that former student is in turn shot by Titus's deputies. And in his investigation of this crime, he finds out that the teacher, the student and the third mystery person were a trio of serial killers. They were involved in in brutal crimes against young people. And so Titus is trying to find the third person while also dealing with the everyday details and problems of being a, a a police officer in a small a small town, you know. And so I like sort of the juxtaposition between him on this great journey to find this incredible evil that is in his town but also him just doing the day-to-day minutiae that comes mm-hmm. with being a civil servant. And um, for me, the book was a really interesting way to sort of examine small small town life in a way I don't think I've done. I've touched on it, but this was really me diving in, um, you know, head first into like small town politics, small town psychology. And it was, for me, I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that. It's funny you should mention that because I, I noticed that the way that I really liked the the way that you kind of, you, you obviously you're dealing with this huge event that happens, right? That, you know, that incites an incident that kicks off the whole novel and the story at the beginning there. But you don't, you never shy away from telling us that that's not the only thing that he has to deal with. I mean, talking from a, like, police procedural point of view, you've still got all these other little things. It's, there are still other crimes going on in the in the uh, county and there are other things that he's having to deal with. And you make a point of, of showing us that, plus obviously all the stuff that he's going on, you know, that he's got going on in, internally as well. But it, but it wasn't Yeah, it, yeah. And and it, it, it's a shift obviously as you said it The way that it's different from your previous novels Is the fact that that police procedural element Because that you know mm-hmm. the stuff that you've done before It has been It's people on the other side of it if you like That are just skirting mm-hmm. the fringes of the other side What made you decide to go that route And, and how did you find writing a police procedural From that point of view
1: So to, first of all I love reading mysteries Growing up I love reading Police procedurals, uh, detective novels. Yeah. So there's a big series in the United States called the 87 Precinct novels by yeah. Ed McBain. I read, you know, the early. Uh, there's a um, an English writer named Ruth Win- Win- Ruth Rendell who had the Inspector yeah, yeah. Wexler series, and so I love stuff like that. I love the sort of familiarity that comes with a police procedural. You know, Ooh. you hit the team, here's the chief, and here's the underlings, and sort of this sort of um, super team, sort of, in, in a way. However, <clears throat> for me, one of the reasons I wanted to write police procedural is because I wanted to examine the idea of police overreach and police brutality in America, yeah, yeah. and I wanted to do it through a small-town police force. And so, with Titus, you have a character who's a former FBI agent, who's retired, um, a little bit early, so there's a little bit, a little bit in his history why he retired early, mm-hmm. and ostensibly he's come home to take care of his father, but really he has some things going on in his personal life, and he decided, like a lot of us do, to come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so making him the sheriff was very interesting for me because I wanted to show what it looks like when a good police officer, a, mm-hmm. a, a cop who's a really good cop, runs into sort of the the machinery, the 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 bureaucracy of American policing, mm-hmm. and you know. Um, There's a quote a friend of mine said that we always talk about in America, we want to reform the police force because the justice system is unfair. But really, in America, the justice system is working the way it was designed to work, you know. And so um, I think looking at a character who does have a strong moral uh, foundation and how does that character deal with this, you know, Titus wants to change Police force from the inside out. That's the reason he ran. But if you if you take if you think of American justice and American policing like a house, right? Mm -hmm. He is somebody who wants to paint the walls and fix the roof, which is great, but the foundation is cracked. Yeah. And so all these cosmetic things don't really help. That being said, I think the thing that I thought also was interesting, my previous books deal with people like you said on the outskirts of of the law, outlaws. Mm -hmm. Uh I think the term over in England is hard men. Um and so uh, (laughs) And so, uh, I think when you write that type of character, it's not easier, but you do have a lot more flexibility because mm-hmm. an outlaw, somebody on the outside of the law, so to speak, the only rule they have to follow is don't get caught. Yeah. You know, they may have their own uh, code, oh, yeah. you know, among thieves or whatnot, but the, really the main rule is don't get caught. With a police officer, <clears throat> you have, if he's a good one, you have someone who is. You know, his whole career is about following the rules and forcing the rules. Mm -hmm. And I heard Walter Mosley say this once that everybody has morals until they're tested. Yeah. And I thought that was such a fascinating thing to do with Titus. It's like, here's this guy who claims to be, who strives to be a morally upright person, Mm -hmm. but then he's confronted with this great evil. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, how does he process that? Is he. Is he tempted to take shortcuts? Is he tempted to go outside the law to solve the problem? Mm-hmm. And so that constant pull and push between his desire to enforce the law equally and his desire to see justice done, I thought was fascinating.
0: It is. Yeah. And and the way that he finds himself in a bit of a no man's land, as you say, because he's the, he's the first black sheriff and he's, He's kind of, he's kind of pissing off both sides equally, isn't he? At the time, he he can't can't seem to do right for doing wrong. He kind of wants to walk the the line down the middle, but it's very, very difficult for him.
1: Yeah, the one thing that everybody in town is united in is that they don't like it. (laughs) He's bringing them together in that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) And the name, obviously, only just struck me when you actually, I love the name of the character name. That's such a great character name, by the way, Titus Crown. It's that obviously you kind of jokingly referred to the be, at the beginning talking about where you actually reside now in Gloucester and tied to the crown? Was mm-hmm. that is that was that a deliberate play on words when you thought of that, or was that just happy coincidence? I
1: mean, <laughs> like I like for me uh, that when I said it earlier, I was kind of joking, but yeah, Titus's name yeah. was something I put research in. You know, Titus technically yeah. you know means upright; it means yeah. you know, forthright um crown obviously as a king or a leader. Yeah, yeah. Um and so I wanted him to have that name because in my mind, he's sort of this this errant knight, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's he, the thing about it is with a guy like Titus, when you become a police officer, and this I think this is the same in UK, police officers have powers. You know, they have, you know, they, they have a, a a lot of power behind the badge, behind their their title. And I think, you know, there's this old, I think it's Benjamin Disraeli line that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to show somebody like Titus who that doesn't, he doesn't get corrupted. He, he's not perfect by all means. If you read the book, he has a girlfriend that he's sort of kind of in love with. Maybe, maybe not. He has an ex-girlfriend who's mm-hmm. a journalist turned podcaster who comes to town. Yeah. Once the, uh, the, uh, the crimes have been, uh, um, publicized. So he's torn up, torn between these two women. As I said before, he has some secrets in his past, things he's not proud of. So mm-hmm. he's not perfect, but he's trying really hard to be good. He's trying so hard yeah. to be that good person. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of his name sort of emblematic of that, that he is sort of this forefright person. Um, you know, and I, I like names. I think names are important. I think the names of places and characters mean something in works, mm-hmm. in books. I'm not one of these people that just slaps a name on a character like, all right, you know, let's move forward. I do think that James yeah they have power they have they have to have the right rhythm, you know, and as far as Titus, you know, the poor guy he goes to a lot, you know like but a knight whose armor uh is unblemished is a knight who's never been tested nice,
0: yeah, absolutely, so were you always drawn to this genre to noir in particular what what did, what is it that you love
1: about it? I loved reading it as a kid. there was something philosophical about especially the early American noir. Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, Ross McDonald, John D. McDonald, mm-hmm. um, even uh, Chester Himes and Mickey Spillane. <laughs> there was this sort of, especially in the post-war years in America, this sort of malaise that existed. Whether if you were somebody who fought in the, in the Great War or, or World War II, or somebody who didn't, there just seemed to be this way that writers, and especially crime writers, were interpreting um, the society that they lived in. I think crime writing, regardless of the genre, what the subgenre, is probably one of the best. Uh, tools to examine the yeah. human condition. Uh, not to sound too heady, but you know, I no, think I you know, like you read great novels, right? You read a great novel, you read Tess of D'Urberville's, you read Jane Eyre, you read uh, like American novels like uh, something by like Philip Roth. Like say Philip Roth. I-, I may never understand what it's like to be a professor at mm-hmm. um, a fancy college in the Northeast of America. Yeah. But I understand desperation. Yeah. I understand fear. And there's something about crime fiction and noir fiction in general, that I think that is able to tap into those fears and tap into those base human emotions, you know. Uh, and Dennis Lehane said that uh, the great noir, great literature is someone falling from a great height, like Icarus. He said, "Great noir fiction literature is someone falling from the uh, sidewalk into the gutter." And <laughs> exactly. I think there's sort of a a universality with those that writing. Now, I didn't start out writing noir. I, I started. I wanted to write horror stories. I wanted to be you know, the next Stephen King, the next yeah. Clive Barker. Um, and, it you know, for whatever reason, people didn't gravitate toward my horror stories. And I got lucky. And I said, again, I've always read noir fiction, crime fiction, uh, Agatha Christie, you know, English uh, drawing room mysteries. I love all aspects of crime fiction. Yeah, But I got lucky. A friend of mine met a gentleman named Todd Robinson. And in America, he used to publish a magazine called Thug Literature. It's one of the few magazines, Thug Lit, it was one of the few magazines specifically geared toward hard-boiled noir crime fiction mm-hmm. and um, I, she, my friend she came home I was dating her at the time she comes home she's like hey because she was a belly dancer and she was performing in his city she's like I met this guy and he needs writers you should send him a crime story and at first I was sort of hesitant because again like I come from a small town mm-hmm. and the sort of the sort of uh, everyday um, humanity and, and uh, stuff here in this small town I didn't know if it would appeal to other people. But I wrote a story about these two brothers fighting over an, an inheritance, an inheritance, it's a house. Mm-hmm. And um, it got published and I sort of found my uh, niche and that's how I started writing uh, crime and crime fiction. But I was always drawn to it as a kid. I've always been drawn to the darker stuff.
0: Yeah, obviously. So to, to on that subject, let's go back a little bit. So tell me about you. How did you actually come to writing in the first, first place? What's your, earliest, <laughs> what's your earliest memory of writing?
1: so my mother who's passed on but she used to tell this story that when i was four or five she would read me bedtime stories and that i would always complain <laughs> because i would point out the potholes in bedtime stories yeah. and i remember having this conversation with her about the three little pigs about you know they use straw to build one house and they use sticks to build another and they finally they yeah. sell on bricks and i remember saying to my mom like they should have used bricks in the first place. Why didn't they just settle <laughs> on that? <laughs> and so my mother challenged me to write a story on my own. She's like, oh, you're so smart. Write your own story. And I was seven or eight years old. And I wrote her this story about, <laughs> about these space spacefaring gnomes who come from another planet where yeah. everybody on that planet are gnomes. And they land in a rocket ship behind our house in a tree. And they have to... Uh, Figure out a way to get home. And, and it's just, it was all over the place. But, but <laughs> give yourself a break. Look, you were seven, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like now I'm looking at it through these eyes of <laughs> an adult. It's like, oh, the narrative's all over the place. It has no clock consistency. <laughs> yeah. But I remember the look on my mother's face when she finished reading it. Mm-hmm. And it was just this sort of disbelief. Like, because she kept asking, you came up with this by yourself, all on your own. It's like, yeah. yeah. She's like, nobody helped you. I was like, no. And the look of her face is sort of this high that I've been chasing ever since. I love meeting people who have read my books and really enjoy them. Not for the the ego boost. I I don't know. I know exactly
0: what you're saying. The the stories landed in the way that you wanted it to land.
1: Exactly. And so when people come to me like, I love this book. It's like, oh, you got it. I wasn't just, you know, howling it in the dark by myself. You understand what I'm saying. So I don't need people to come up to me and tell me, oh, my God, you're the greatest writer uh-huh. ever i that's I, I don't need that but i love when somebody tells me i couldn't put this book down oh, i love this story i love these characters that's the uh that's the icing on the cake really that's the thing that you're
0: chasing so you you've talked obviously you've talked a lot before about you you came from a pretty impoverished background uh and and the area of the, of the country that you were brought up in and the rest of it so what was the reaction your mum aside because obviously your mom was obviously really behind you right from the get-go and she walked into it but your mom aside what was the reaction of your friends and family when you sort of as you got older (laughs) and you said you know you were you were trying to do this this something that you were doing this on the side and you were the 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 writer one
1: so my friends kind of politely listened (laughs) they weren't uh, against me but they weren't like a hundred percent behind me I mean I love them you know my best friends are still my best friends from school and they were like okay cool that's what you want to do My family was much more uh, reticent to get behind it. Like, you know, I had aunts and uncles and cousins. I have a big family and they're all like, you know, that right thing is cool, but you should get a good job. You know, don't don't <laughs> give a day job just yet, and so on and so forth. Um, I had one relative, and I won't say what relation they were, but I had one relative who was outwardly just hostile about it. Like, oh, right. every time right. we'd get together for a family get together, like, oh, you, I haven't seen no books yet, and I was in Target <laughs> or I was in the store, I didn't see your name on a book or nothing. And you know, I got my first, so I got my you. first World check, Yeah, I know, all right. He's, yeah, they they were so encouraging. And I got my first royalty check for Blacktop Wasteland um, in the fall, the spring of 2021. Mm-hmm. And it was that moment, I think there was a moment in the States where when the vaccines came out, we were still in the middle of the pandemic, but you felt like, oh, we're vaccinated. We can all kind of get together, right? We can yeah. all still, even if we do it outside, we can get together. Yeah, And we were having a family get together. It was the first one since the pandemic started. We were doing it in a park. And this is where I come off as petty, but I went and took my check, and I went to like a local print shop, <laughs> and I blacked out all the important information, like the account number and all that, and I basically just had to blow up my name and the amount, and I got it about uh about a a, a poster board size, so about uh about uh uh three inches wide and six inches long. So it's pretty pretty yeah. good size sign, yeah. And I took that to the family gathering, and I just laid it on the uh picnic table i didn't say anything and um so that relate that relative saw it and i know they were aware of it and so that was kind of fun. you shut them up good <laughs> <laughs> that's good but i'll tell you this but i'll tell you this now that the books have come out and they've done well and i'm very blessed for that um uh, lo- everybody here locally like i said that's a small town so happy and so supportive and if i think yeah. it is for them it's cool to see a local son done good so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we go out to dinner and stuff and people are, are so excited. The one thing that always cracks me up is people want to be in the books really bad. And I'm like, <laughs> "Have you read them?" Cuz like, you might not make it to page up- <laughs> 20. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people getting shot in the face in my book. If they love it people are like, "Oh yeah, kill me. Kill me. I want to be in the book." I'm like, "Okay." You know, but I can't I, I can't lie the the support here at home It's just been phenomenal. And it it really, like I travel, I've traveled. Like I said, I was in Spain. I was in in Amsterdam earlier this year in England, in the UK. And I love traveling around the country, but it is something special about being home. And the people that have known you the longest get to see a little bit of the success. So that Mm -hmm. means a lot.
0: And I think the thing that you were talking, I I relate to the thing you were talking about, about being working class, because I'm the same. I'm from a working class background. And I think it's more, uh, the person aside that was kind of in your face and not very encouraging, obviously the rest <laughs> of your family that I think it comes more from a place of being concerned and being worried. Yeah. Like, how, how are you going to look after yourself? You know, as in mm-hmm. you need to earn a living and we're worried about you losing mm-hmm. your job and all the rest of it. And I think it comes from yeah. that. And I think once they see that you can, cause they can't relate to it, you know, cause most people, yeah. like, most people in my family, they're like, they, you know, they don't know anybody that makes a living from being, doing a bit doing art or write or whatever they don't know Mm -hmm. anybody like that so to them it's kind of you know how can you make a living but once they see that you're okay they're
1: really supportive and like really really proud oh yeah yeah definitely that once they see that things are going well they're the most supportive my aunt my mother's sister is so excited my uncles my dad who's not a reader my dad's not a reader at all does doesn't care to, to read but you know he has all my books you know and they're sitting on his entertainment center and his tv um they they you know like you said they're concerned they want you to be okay but once they realize you're making a living at it oh they're 100 percent behind you.
0: <laughs> yeah oh yeah it's fantastic so you, you've, as you say, you were kind of doing it. You were writing like many people listening to this podcast will be, you know, they're kind of holding, trying to hold down a day job and do this on the side mm-hmm. or whatever. So you had, you had lots of other day jobs. You talked before about being a manager of a, was it hardware store, or retail store or something? Mm-hmm, you yeah. Still, yeah. So there'll be lots of writers out there listening to this who are trying to write around their day jobs. What would be your message to them? How did you stay focused and find <clears throat> the time and the energy to write because it's not just time is it you know if you've done it no if you've done a nine to five job or whatever it happens to be and you get home and then it's then you've got to start writing it can be difficult sometimes
1: yeah i think for me like like for instance i used to write on my lunch break like i would go to a coffee shop and i got an hour break for lunch and i'd write for 45 minutes and i'd eat for 15 and then like i, I like to um i uh, i like to lift weights i like to go to the gym and I would um, cut my gym time down. Like, okay, I'm only going for 30 minutes today. I'm going to dedicate 30 minutes to writing. Mm -hmm. I just did my best to find pockets of time that I could write A that I could write uninterrupted. That's the main thing I think a lot of people, especially somebody who's only a job or who has a family to support, is finding not just the time to write, but to write uninterrupted. You know, and uh, I think the second thing is don't beat up on yourself if you don't find time Tuesday or Thursday, or there's a day where you were like, Oh, I'm going to really dig into this project today. And like, Oh no, the, the hot water heat is just going out. We got to call a repairman or, you know, don't beat up on yourself when life intrudes, just don't give up. I think what happens with people sometimes is you have a, like I said, again, you have a lot of things in your regular day to day, nine to five life that go right or maybe go wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of, I'll get back to the book tomorrow. I'll get back to it next week. I'll get back to it next month. Next month becomes next year. Yeah. Don't give up on that, but also don't beat up on yourself. If like, oh, tonight I can't write because we got to take the dog to the vet, or yeah, I got pulled into working over a few hours. I can't. You know, it's not the end of the world if you miss that writing time. Mm-hmm. What is the end of the world is give up on it, and I think that's what happens to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: a great way of looking at it. Well, on that subject, you, you so your first published novel, I think I'm right in saying, was My Darkest Prayer, which I have which I yes. read when you re released it recently. It's brilliant. <coughs> but- I believe, um, but obviously, that you know, it was kind of forgotten about the first time around until you eventually mm-hmm. broke through with uh, Blacktop Wasteland. So, tell mm-hmm. us about your path to publication. How did My Darkest Prayer <laughs> first end up being published, and what made you keep going? Because I have heard you talk before about the amount of rejections yeah. and things that you got.
1: Oh man, I got 63 rejections for Darkest Prayer. So, let me go, I'll go back a little bit, I'll give you the cliff notes first. Yeah. So, after. After Thug Lit closed uh in 2016, um, I got a call from uh the guy who's the publisher, Todd Robinson. He said, Hey, there's an agent uh that reached out to me because you know he didn't know your information and I want to put you guys in touch. He wants to talk to you. I'm like, oh, okay, talk to this guy. Real, I'm not gonna say who it is, but a really nice agent, really mm-hmm. great gentleman. Yeah. And um we we I had Darkest Prayer, he liked it. Um, but I think Relationships with agents are like Friendships or romantic relationships They have to fit and you have to be on the same Page for those things to work And I think this particular agent saw Me in a way that I don't In a way that I didn't see myself Uh And so one of the first things he did was Change the title of the book he said well I don't like This title Darkest Prayer we should change it to something else And you know back then I didn't speak up for myself because I'm You know this is an agent this is a person who's an expert Yeah like most
0: writers yeah yeah when they get that
1: First chance yeah and so we went out with it and it didn't do well. We got all those rejections and he was very kind to me, but he said, look, I don't think this is working out. Um, why don't you come back with something else? And then we'll, we'll re revisit this later. I'm like, okay, so we parted ways am- amicably and we're still friends to this day. So I just want to throw that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I took that book, Darter's Prayer, because I really believed in it. I didn't think it was a bad book and I wasn't getting bad rejections. None of those reactions are like, oh, this is terrible, this is unrealistic, yeah, I don't yeah. believe it, whatever. Most of the rejections, we don't know how to sell it, we don't know where to put it in our catalog. Yeah. So I ended up meeting um, a guy named Austin Camacho who ran a small publishing firm here in the States, independent firm. I just approached him at a reading, took the book, published it, came out, uh, you know, like you said, it, did all right. it was an independent book. Um, yeah. And so <clears throat> while that was with Austin and we were coming out with that, I went to a big writing conference called Boucher Con, the World Mystery Writing Convention. And um, I went there to promote Darkest Prayer with the small publishing firm. And I was asked to be on a panel and the panel was about Southern crime fiction. And it was these really, really good writers on there. Uh, a guy named Ace Atkins, uh, Another gentleman named Alex Agura, a woman named Steph Post, and the moderator, Eric Pert. all published writers, all established writers, um, and people who I really respect. Anyway, long story short, we did the panel. It was really cool. At the end of the panel, lady got up. She was from the South, as I am, and she felt like we were being too hard on the South, and I made a joke at her expense, and everybody laughed. And, and, uh, and then later on, as I was walking down the hallway, a guy comes up to me, and he said, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm a literary agent. I loved what you were talking about up there. Are you represented by anyone? And if you're not, here's my business card. And I took his card. I went home. That was like November of 2018, and I, I had this book, which eventually became Blacktop Wasteland. Mm-hmm. And I hemmed and hard about whether or not to send it to him because I had a bad relationship. Not say bad relationship. I, the, my previous agent hadn't relationship out. didn't work yeah. out. I should yeah. say that. right. So anyway, I sent him the book in November of 2018. He responded to me in December of 2018, said he loved it, would love to represent me. And then two months later, in February of 2019, he sold it to Flatiron for a two book deal. So
0: you, it's I mean, it's it's a story that you do hear more often than not, not necessarily to the extent that you've had the success that you've had in the last couple of years. But that that thing from kind of going from nothing, to, you know, zero to 100 miles an hour in the space of a, a few months, it's it's strange, isn't it?
1: It's surreal, and I think people think like when they see you come on the scene, so to speak. Oh, you're an overnight success. Um, I'll be 50 <laughs> in a couple of years, and yeah. I've been writing for a long time. Yeah, I was writing back before email was common. I, you know, I was because I started sending out stories in my 20s. I started sending stories out 17 or 18 or 19. So I've been writing for a while. So it's not overnight success, yeah. but I think you know, luck meets talent. But you know, I, I think. You have to be talented. You know what's funny? I'll say this. I am a very self-deprecating writer. I don't take myself very seriously. I like writing. I love that people love my books, but I don't see myself on a pedestal at all. And to to that point, I'm almost too self-deprecating. And a good friend of mine named Jordan Harper, who's an incredible writer in his own right, um, said to me one day, he said, hey, man, stop being so down on yourself. He said, what we do is special. And if everybody could do it, everybody would do it. Exactly. And I had to think about that for a while. And I think that's true. So, you know, I I like to think of myself, you know, as sort of like Jack London. I don't think I'm the most original writer in the world, but I'm a pretty good elaborator. And so (laughs) I think you have to kind of say that. One more thing I'll say uh, to writers that are listening. There's a part of you when you decide that you're going to be a writer, when you decide this is your thing, this is your purpose. You have to have a little tiny bit of egotism because you really have to believe you have something interesting to say. I'm not saying you have to have something important to say or profound, but you have to believe I have something interesting to say and I want to say it. And that egotism, that little bit of egotism will help you get through this, the, the rejections, will help you get through the doubt. Um, because at the end of the day, for me, whether I got published or not, I was just going to keep writing. 'Cause it's a thing that I like to do. It's a thing that brings me peace. Mm-hmm. I'm just very lucky, very blessed that it turned out the way it did. But I think I think you are a writer. I think you're born a writer. I d I don't think that's something you become. You know, I think you have a storytelling gift in you. Now you can go to college and, and get a, you know, a degree and that can help you refine it, but it has to be there. You know, it's like that, uh it's like um it's like a diamond in the rough sort of. Mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe.
0: I definitely I totally agree with you And as you say you've spent Literally you've spent decades Honing your craft you know by going Over and over and mm-hmm. doing writing Lots of stories and sending them off and, and obviously Building a thick skin in terms Of rejection and getting <laughs> Knockbacks and still gotcha. going it's part of it though isn't it
1: Oh yeah, yeah yeah I mean And even now I think you have to have a thick skin You have to believe in yourself You have to believe you have something interesting to say But at the same time like you said You know, I try to get better as a writer every year, every day. I try to make myself a better writer. Um, There's stuff I wrote when I was 25 that I look at and cringe at now. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's stuff I wrote when I was 25 that I look at like, oh, that's pretty, pretty decent. That's not too bad. I think for me or any writer, you have to keep pushing the envelope, you know, keep pushing yourself. Like I read, uh, I started reading last year. I I gave myself a task of trying to read like 25 of the great American novels that were on the list put out by the Library of Congress, Um, and then this year I've read a lot of like romance novels because what I learned from romance novels is like I'm good at physical violence in books. You know, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. I'm good at writing fight scenes, car chases, have shootouts, what have you. Romance novels will teach you how to write emotional violence. Yeah, they'll they'll teach you how people cut each other with words, and I really wanted to get better at that. And so I started reading romance novels. But I think for me, reading is a part of honing that craft. Like I read everything. I read romance novels. I read biographies. I read I just finished a really cool book about the founding of Los Angeles called City mm-hmm. of Quartz. Um and so I think you have to broaden your horizon. If you're a horror writer, don't just read horror. If you're a crime mm-hmm. writer, don't just read crime. Yeah. And you know, same thing if you're a romance writer, don't just read romance. I think reading from a full palette gives you so many tools in your own work.
0: definitely i totally agree and you mentioned there about honing your craft and obviously getting better as you go along would you say that your process or the way that you feel about writing has changed from that first published book to where you are now
1: yeah i think so because like the first published book darkest prayer i uh i enjoyed writing it but at the same time it was it was it was it was torturous in a way because it was my first full length detective novel, and it was a detective novel, and I didn't really you know I'd read a bunch of detective novels, but I was like second guessing myself and i mean I still second guess myself now, like i uh <laughs> all sinner's bleed came out and it it has done really well. I'm so grateful to people for that, but uh, I really had doubts about that book. I didn't know if people were gonna want to go on this journey with me um but for me, the process has gotten smoother, mm-hmm. i think um I know. <laughs> I I again in an effort to not sound too sanctimonious or too egotistical. But I do know the things that I do well now. Yeah. Well you that's know? good. Yeah. And so I yeah, and I know how to accentuate them. Mm-hmm. And the things I don't do well, I know how to hide them a little better. So it makes the process a little smoother. But I think when you get into the heart of the book, it's still the the words in my head are never as clear on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never what's going on inside my mind i can never get it a hundred percent that way on the page Mm -hmm. but i think if you try and you really push yourself you get close and i think that's all you can do um but for me like the process it's smoother in many respects but like when i get toward the end the end is still hard i think the ending is still hard i still want to try to tie all the loose ends up i still want to i want you to go out the door so to speak with a good taste in your mouth Mm -hmm. um i i i struggle with last lines um because to me, a last line is your last impression of the book, yeah. and so you want that last line or that last scene to be you know potent and powerful, but also I think you know you come into the the, the denouement so you want it to also sort of be peaceful in a way yeah, yeah. and uh, um and for me, that's still a struggle but it's also when you get it or you think you've got it, it's such oh such a catharsis you know yeah yeah. When, when you finally like this is the thing this is the line this is the word or this is the phrase and it's like it's everything it just feels so complete once yeah. you find that in like the perfectly voice. wrapped gift sort of thing yeah yeah exactly
0: so if um something that i saw you uh tweet about a, a little while ago you talked i don't know whether you remember this so you you do tweet a lot which is good you can follow your <laughs> adventures um you talked about leaving a showing of a film you're talking about leaving i think it was equalizer three and you said you got stopped yeah. by a young man who asked if you were the writer and yeah, yeah you remember this story T- tell us about that and yeah. how it made you feel what oh, was so cool like, yeah tell us about it
1: it was so cool so we were i was coming out of equalizer three was with a friend and we're going to see the movie the great movie by the way free free advertising <laughs> and there was a group of young boys coming in and there was a diverse group it was two african-american kids uh like three uh i think white guy white kids young boys and one uh latinx looking young man mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so they're coming in i'm coming out and I passed them. We nod respectfully. They were kind. They weren't jerks. But they were being young boys. They were joking with each other and stuff. And they stopped. And uh, one of the African-American kids asked me, excuse me, are you are you Mr. Cosby? Are you the writer? And I turned around. I was like, yeah. They were like, oh, you probably don't remember but you came to see our class last year and it was really cool. And we stood and talked for about 10 minutes and the one of them i remembered i said "One of you wanted to be a writer and Then, one of the kids raised their hand and it was at one of the, the other african-american kid are you and i asked him are you writing he said yeah i don't know if it's any good and i said well look i wrote down my email i said mm-hmm. if it's okay with your parents email yeah. me the story i'll take a look at it and they were like and he was like oh my god you really i said yeah i will and i remember walking away from that and it just struck me how important representation is and how Definitely. important it is to see people who look like you, who come from your background, mm-hmm. doing things and being, you know, being uh, successful. And I think it's for me, especially here in America, it's both class and race, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that particular instance was a young African-American kid who comes from the same town I come from, who had told me when I went to talk to him and his, his fellow students that he didn't know any black writers and mm-hmm. he didn't wasn't aware of any African-American people who were making their living as writing. Mm-hmm. So, you can have that aspect of it. But then also, as I said, I come from a very impoverished background, I come to the hills of Virginia, very poor. And I went to speak at a college in, a, in an area that was very similar to where I come from, a sort of Appalachian type town. And I went to speak to these kids at this college, Western Carolina University. And after my talk, one of the kids was a young uh, a white gentleman comes up to me. And he says, you know, I'm the first person in my family. To graduate from high school. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. Mm-hmm. And I come from a really poor background. Mm-hmm. And to talk to you and to see you and to, and to hear of somebody who gets who comes from that and understands what it means to make it means a lot. And so I think for me, that sort of representation is so important, both from a racial, an ethnic background, but also from a class background. I think showing somebody who comes from that same sort of impoverished background, regardless of their race, that it can be done, that it is possible is really important. And I I hope that when people look at my work and they look at my story, that they see like, oh, they like the books and they like the writing. But also, you know, here's this guy that dropped out of college who was still able to make it, you know? And I think that's important.
0: I I totally agree. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the, you know, jokingly about some of your relatives and things when they're kind of worried about (laughs) you from it. But but a big part of it is because they can't see they're, it's almost like well show me someone else that's done it that's like us that yeah. looks like us or that's had the same background mm-hmm. or whatever and i do think mm-hmm. and, and even more so if it's uh if it's somebody in your town i know uh there's an actor uh called St- i don't know whether you know him stephen graham he's a, a british actor he's been in yeah. he's in the irishman and he's in loads of different other things yeah 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 yeah. The departed and all sorts but um he i've heard him talk about he's was from a working class background in liverpool and talk about mm-hmm. they just happened to be another working class actor that lived around the corner that he literally bumped into <laughs> on the way back from the shops <laughs> or something and the guy said to him he goes oh you're that you're in that thing on the tv and he's like yeah come around and chat to me and i can tell you how to get into yeah. theater or whatever and it's just like that you know and hopefully mm-hmm. experience that you've just had coming out of the uh out of the cinema will be the same for those young And guys. I
1: did, uh, I want to say I did read the young man's story and it was really remarkable. It was really good. Yeah. And I sent nice. it back a few notes, but, I, you know, I said, it, don't give up. Somebody did that to me. Somebody did that for me a long time ago. I was sending out a horror story and, it, you know, a lot of these American magazines don't exist anymore, unfortunately. There was a magazine called Midnight Graffiti and it was a horror periodical and um, I sent a story in. it didn't accept it, but the editor gave thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And he praised the things that I did well. And he gave me advice on the things that I didn't do well. He didn't have to do that. And I I think that you passed that along. Uh, I think that is an important part of being an artist uh, is passing that inspiration along, hopefully.
0: Definitely. And sometimes it's that little lifeline that you need. I think those little things are the things that keep you going, aren't they?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Like years ago, and I know he doesn't remember this. Uh, But Walter Mosley, who I can say now that I've met and I consider a friend years ago. um, Yeah, he took uh, took me and a friend to lunch last year, earlier this year at the uh, uh, Thrill Fest in New York City and uh, wanted to talk to me. And I was like blown away by that. (laughs) But he doesn't remember this. Uh, but years ago he came to university here in my home near my hometown and I was wasn't published nobody knew who I was this was many many years ago and I went up to him and I got him to sign a copy of one of his books for me and he asked me he said you're an aspiring writer and I said well haven't been published yet so I don't think I call myself a writer Mm -hmm. and he said to me he said you know um if you've written something and you finished it you're a writer yeah you are a writer call yourself a writer like he made me say it he wouldn't let me leave are you a writer? And I was like, Yes. Yeah, I guess. He's like, No. You're a writer. I was like, Yes, sir, I'm a writer. And so uh I got to thank him for that years later. He, you know, and um I think if 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 I'm doing that in any small part for someone, then it's all worth it. That's the that's the the, the high, that's the gold medal that I can achieve is is if I'm doing it for somebody else. Um yeah. and it's out of out of a desire to want to help, but also selfishness, because I want to read good books. Exactly. And I want other people to write on
0: <laughs> them. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, on that subject about books, we've I've got a, a, a segment on, on the show now called it's, it's the book, it's the book, that saved my, save my life. Yeah, it's the book, it's the book, saved my life. But metaphorically hmm. speaking, or may, maybe it was, maybe you did have a book that literally saved your life. I don't know, but... What would you, if I said that to you, uh, uh, tell me a book that saved your life. What sort of comes to mind? Uh, there's three, really. Yeah, go um,
1: for it. First one, yeah, first one is Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's an incredible horror novel. It's probably my favorite horror novel. It's probably, in my opinion, one of the top 10 scariest books ever written. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I loved about, about, about Salem's Lot was he was, you know, he set this in a small town in Maine. Which I live in Virginia and and for the geography nerds out there, Virginia and Maine are far apart geographically. Yeah. But emotionally they're not that far apart. And so yeah. the people in that town, I knew those people. I, I grew up with those people. And yeah. seeing him craft this incredibly powerful mythic story out of the characters that he grew up with that are similar to the people I grew up with made me realize I can tell stories about where I come from, Gloucester and Matthews and Southeastern Virginia. um And the other book was, I mentioned him just a little while ago, but Devil in a Blue Dress by yeah. Walter Mosley. Yeah. Again, when I started leaning toward crime fiction, yeah, reading that book, I was like, oh, wow, this guy, he looks like me. He comes from a background like me. You know, Easy Rollins is the lead in this book. He's not, you know, the jovial sidekick, the magical. Yeah. You know, Sidekick, he's the lead and and then there's villains that are African American. There's heroes. There's all these things that are part of my life that I'd never seen really represented in books before mm-hmm. was in a devil in a blue dress. And even though it takes place in the fifties, again, I know these people. I know this world. And I think for me, the last book is uh an all crime. I'll cry. I'll 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 give one more book after this one. But uh this is a book <laughs> because <laughs> I think they all crime novels and there is a book I've read that's not a crime novel that I really yeah. love but um, the, the third one in the in the four <laughs> is uh, <laughs> Darkness, Darkness Take My Hand by Dennis Lane um, oh, it man. is a beautiful brilliant brutal dark exploration of the depths of the human heart and how black it can be mm-hmm. but also how much it can you know it seeks the light and um, I love 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 just how he opens that book with a prologue. And, you know, a lot of people tell you nowadays, don't use a prologue, prologue, you know, fans, readers want to get right to the meat of the action. And mm-hmm. I remember reading *Darkness Take My Hand. And I said, one day I'm going to write a book with a prologue because yeah. it's just so beautiful and sets the scene so elegantly mm-hmm. because, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, the main character survived because it's in first person. Yeah, but what did he go through? Because you read yeah. that prologue, he's gone through some stuff. And yeah. so that book, again, as a writer, I wanted to write a book that made somebody feel the way I felt when I read that book, that book really, it just made me feel like there's magic in writing and this is how you do it. Um, and then finally a book that I read is not a crime novel that I really love. So I'm a Shakespeare fan, um, yeah. in outside of just my writing, I love Shakespeare. I've seen almost all the plays in person. I have the collected works here on my, on my, on my desk. Um, but I read a book called A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. Um, and it's sort of a modern interpretation of King Lear, right? Mm-hmm. It's about this landowner who has a thousand acres of land mm-hmm. and he's going to retire he wants his three daughters to take over his farming empire. And it's very similar to, to Lear mm-hmm. and what she does in that book. You know, a lot of times the knock on literary novels is they're boring. You know, yeah. <laughs> like my friend Todd says literary novels are 350 pages of people talking about maybe doing something. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, but A Thousand Acres isn't that. A Thousand Acres, it's like, um, it's like The Secret History. There's so much going on in these books. In the Secret History is the book by Donna Tartt. But again, A Thousand Acres is the one that I read first and it's the one that had yeah. a big impact on me. It's like, you can tell this story and it encompasses all genre, subgenres. There's crime in this story. There's romance. There's heartache. There's noir feelings, and and so those are the four books that I read that really they saved my life as a writer, as a person. Um, you know, Devil in the Blue Dress. I reread that when I started writing Darkest Prayer mm-hmm. because I wanted, again, I wanted to structure and create a story that had that same sort of feel. So when somebody read it years from now, like oh, I recognize those folks, and you know, um, Salem's Lot, I reread it every. I, I just finished reading it this Halloween. I reread it, reread it every Halloween. I love that story. It is it, actually a kind of heartwarming story, mm-hmm. besides the you know vampires killing people. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, You know, and Darkness Take My Hand is just. I got to meet Ben Zahane last year. And I got to tell him how much that book meant to me. And uh, a yeah. little cool story about that. Uh, years and years and years ago, a friend of mine got a copy of Darkness Take My Hand signed for me at a book. So I couldn't go. And she was there. And she had him sign it to show good luck in your writing career. And then last year, I met him at Bouchercon in Minneapolis. And he gave me a copy of Moonlight Mile, which is the end of that series mm-hmm. of books. And he had written in it with great admiration. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a really cool how it started, how was it going? Yeah. Moment, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, exactly. yeah. Oh, so, you know book, yeah. Books books are books have always been there for me. In, in in even in my best times or my darkest times, reading has always been the thing that has helped me get through those times. And so the idea that maybe somewhere, somehow, one of my books is doing that for somebody else, that uh that makes me happy.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, as we move towards uh, wrapping things up, because I know you've got other things going on today as well, what, what would you say has been the best piece of creative advice that you've been given along
1: the way, Sean? Oh, man, I think there's two pieces, and I'm going to repeat name-dropping again. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Go for it.
0: Drop away. Drop away.
1: <laughs> Walter Mosley told me, especially he said, once your books have started to become successful, he said, never forget they need you more than you need them. Mm-hmm. They need your creativity. They need your imagination because without you, they don't have books to sell. Mm-hmm. So that's on a business side of it. Yeah. Sort of yeah. A
0: that's good advice right. though. Yeah.
1: But the create creatively something Dennis Lehane said, and I think, it, and I don't know where he heard it from, but I think it's so true. The thing, the secret to writing is to realize there's a story That only you can tell because only you have lived your lifetime of experiences. And so the prism through which that story is told is uniquely your own. Doesn't matter the subject matter. Doesn't matter the genre. The specific story that you're going to tell, even if he uses cliches, is specific to you. And if you're a writer, you'll never rest until you tell that story. That's great advice.
0: Yeah, because I think we get... You can easily get hung up all the time about oh, this has got to be incredibly original. The story's got to be really, mm-hmm. really original. But I think we forget sometimes the thing that makes it original, as you've just said, is is you. It's your voice. It's your it's the way
1: that you're viewing it and the way that you're telling the story. Exactly. I, I knew a guy from. I met a gentleman from the UK. He's passed away recently. Um, he was a writer named Dale Brendan Hyde, mm-hmm. and Dale had a unique life. He had. He was a boxer. I, you know I think he was a Sort of a a hard man at at a certain time, um, you know he had gone to jail for a crime he didn't commit. He came out, and he used all of that to write this book uh, called The Ink Run. And um, somehow it got into my hands in the states, and I read it. And when I was reading it, I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, this this guy only this guy could tell this story." You know, yeah, yeah. No one else could have written this book, and I'm so 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 happy that. I got to see him. I was in Harrogate uh, in in the UK early this year. Yeah, um, and it's a Big Crime Festival up there. Saint, I think it's called Saint Edna's. Um, but it's in Harrogate. Anyway, I we've been friends online for a long time. Dale had been ill for quite a a while, and we got to meet in person. Um, and I got to tell him that in person that that book, you know, the only oh, you're the only person could have written that story. And he was very kind. And you know, unfortunately, sadly, Dale passed away a few months ago. But sorry to hear that. Thank you. But I think the thing that makes me think about him is that that piece of advice that Dennis Lane said there's a story in you. And if you're a writer, you got to let it out. And no one can tell that story the way you can. You know, know, I'll say one last thing before we go. When I started writing, when I came out with Black Top Wasteland and Darkest Prayer, these sort of southern rural noirs that don't take place in in the mountains, they're down, as we call them, the coast in Virginia, the coastal cities, coastal counties, I should say, um, with African-American leads, um, writing about all different types of stuff, about toxic masculinity, about homophobia, Mm -hmm. uh, about religious mania, whatever you want to call it. Um, When I first started writing, nobody, like, there were very few people that wanted those books. And now, when you look at a publisher trade magazine, you'll see people say, oh, we want you know this book. We want blank book, but you know we want a blackout baseline. to set it, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want the XA cause. We want the next. All <laughs> yeah. the sinners bleed. And yeah. so for me, I don't look at that as a self-aggrandizing moment because it's not. But for me, what it shows is the truth of that statement. There are stories that are being told that only the the people who are telling them can 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 give them the heart and the width and the grav- gravitas that they need. And that's regardless of what others. Uh, African American man from southeastern Virginia or a gay woman from Minnesota or a, a young, you know, a young mixed race person from uh, Birmingham, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. UK. There are stories out there that need to be told and that um, not only do they need to be told, but other people will want to read them, want to experience them, you know, and I, I, I think going forward, I hope that we see in publishing both here and in the UK more uh, willingness to explore those kinds of stories and listen to those different um, unique voices i think that's where the best art is coming from uh people that have been on the on the on the outer skirts the edges for a long time um getting a chance to tell their tales
0: i, I totally agree and that's a, that's a good place to bring things to a close but before we do just tell people where they can find out more about you and your work online your social media etc
1: yeah so i'm working on getting a website i haven't got one yet i know i'm still in the 19th century. Um, but you can find me on Twitter. Uh they call it X, but I'm never gonna call it that. It's Twitter to me. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, I'm on uh, Blue Sky, Facebook. All my DMs are usually open. And you can just hit me up or tell me you like the book. Or or if you didn't like it, don't don't tell me that. I'd hate to have my day (laughs) started. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh pretty active online and eventually one day I'll be getting a website. But yeah, just hit me up online. I love to talk about books. Oh, that's
0: great. Well, it's been so good to have you on, Sean. But for now, thanks for coming on Joined Up Writing.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Joined Up Writing There
0: you go. And thanks again to Sean. And I'll put all of his links in the show notes over at joinedupwriting.co.uk. That's it for this week. Other than me reminding you to make sure you subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher to... That's it for this week, other than me reminding you to make sure you subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts, and that way you can get the show downloaded automatically every single time. Also, remember to leave us a nice rating and review on whichever platform you listen to uh, us on, because it does help other people to find the show, or, you know, just use your mouth, flap your lips tell somebody else that you know and tell them about it other than that thanks for listening to the show this week i'm wayne kelly happy writing stay safe and i'll see you next time